This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash sports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 38. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Rob Vaca is our guest, and he's a true mentor and connector for many professional athletes. And speaking of connecting, the best way to stay connected to the podcast is by following us on Twitter, at Rich Take Sports. And also, don't forget... The one-stop shop really is our website, and that's richtakeonsports.com. There you can find all of the episodes, the past episodes, the current episodes, and you can also just subscribe directly from our website, and that's through the different platforms, Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all of that. And also, you know, I really welcome any feedback directly. So please send an email if you have any type of questions, feedback, and you can send that message to richmond at richtakeonsports.com. Okay, those housekeeping items are out of the way, so let's move to the Rich Spotlight. Shining brightly to share the stories of people in sports. This is the Rich Spotlight. This episode, our guest is someone that I've wanted to have on for some time now because his name, just for whatever reason, continued to come up in various circles through some of the other guests that we've had here on the podcast, and that's Rob Vodka. Now, giving a title to Rob is very difficult because he's so much to so many people and You know, he's a pro athlete mentor. He's a connector and a giver because he focuses on shaping career options and opportunities for NFL players. Now, as much as possible, I strive to really have in-person interviews, and we know that's not always possible. But Rob was gracious to fit me into his busy schedule, and so we actually got to meet in person. And it was at the Elite Sports Academy in Buford, Georgia, which is run by former NFL All-Pro cornerback and Super Bowl champion with the Indianapolis Colts, Tim Jennings. And it was great seeing some of that training going on, and you can actually hear some of that in the background. Now, I knew that Rob works with a lot of NFL players, but one of the things that I wanted to learn more about was just how sports became important to him and what sports he played as a kid. First of all, Richmond, thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm honored. I'm, I'm humbled to be on your podcast. Some of my closest friends have, have uh, gone before me, Jared Emerson and Takeo Spikes. I, I don't know how I fit in because Jared is this world-class artist and performer, and, and Takeo has knocked the you know, knock the snot out of lots of quarterbacks and running backs, and I can't do either of those. So I, I'm not sure what I'm going to add, but I'm going to try my best. So, 
Yeah, from an early age, I have two brothers from an early age. We played all the sports, right? Growing up on, on the New Jer- Jersey Shore, basketball and soccer and baseball, and then later on, football were really big. And I just believe that you can learn so many life lessons and you can set up what I call the bowling pins for what comes later by participating in sports. You learn lessons like camaraderie and teamwork and perseverance and persistence and that hard work pays off. And, you know, it's almost like sports creates a microcosm of life and the seasons of life because sometimes you get what you want, sometimes you don't, sometimes you're named the starter, sometimes you're third string, and you've got to fight through all these different scenarios and really learn to cope. And, and growing up, I played soccer and basketball and baseball. And I think it's really important to me for my own children, and I have two of them, Kyle's 12 and Alexis is 15. It's important that they're exposed to different sports and a diverse array of, of extracurricular activity. Because if you get so one-focused one or singular-focused, I just don't think you grow up with the myriad of experiences that can can shape who you are. And I, I don't think that you get to really understand what you're going to love and be good at. So soccer was the thing that I played a lot of growing up and ultimately led me to football and ultimately led me to kicking and ultimately led me to one of the greatest small colleges on the planet, which is Wittenberg University in Ohio. So then how did you get from New Jersey to Ohio? It's a great question. So I had dreams of playing bigger time college football. And at the time, this was the late 80s, I went down. I had an uncle who was a University of Florida law grad. I went down. I did a visit in Florida. The head coach at the time was a guy by the name of Charlie Pell. Florida had players like Lomas Brown playing there, who's become a friend of mine, so it's kind of neat. And Florida at that time in the late 80s, uh, maybe maybe it was 84, 85, Florida had a catastrophic recruiting and um, booster violation, and all their scholarships were taken away, their TV rights, their ability to compete in championships. And so that really ended, that was about a month after I visited there. That really ended any hope I had of going to Florida. And I didn't have a lot of other irons in the fire. And I was, I was a really good kicker, but I only attempted my senior year in, in high school, attempted three field goals and made two of them. So you're not going to get a lot of people calling you <laughs> to come play for them. So my dad had gone to school in Ohio. He was a little All-America offensive guard at Marietta College in Ohio. I, I uh, have in my possession handwritten notes, letters to him offering him to come play for their team from Vince Lombardi, from George Hallis, from George Allen, from Wellington Mara. So from an early age, football was kind of in our blood. And my dad played small college football in Ohio, and he took me on a tour, and I fell in love with Wittenberg and Springfield, Ohio. Now, was it something that you were recruited at Wittenberg? Yeah, there's not <laughs> Division Three football in 1987, uh, in 1984-85. There wasn't a lot of recruiting going on. And so it was more like I recruited them. I showed up, and ultimately the coach at the time was a guy by the name of Ron Murphy, and, and he saw what I could do, and he said to me, you know what, if you come here, If you can afford to pay all this dough to go to a small liberal arts college, which today is, you know, 50 or 60,000 dollars. If you can get your old man to pony up because we don't have scholarships, you'll start. You'll most likely start all four years 
and you could do some really big things for us. You'll have a great education. This is a great place. And I fell in love with it, and I fell in love with the dream, and so I wound up going to Wittenberg. And I did have an opportunity to start as a freshman. I did have an opportunity to play for all four years, and it were, was some of the greatest experiences I've ever had. So it worked out well. And you actually hold some kicking records at Wittenberg. So how do you feel about that? Well, first of all, you know, I look at, at records a little di- at the time, I thought I was the man. But today, with more humility through experiences and more understanding and wisdom, if you start four years and you get to play all four years, you're going to break some records. I, I hope. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're in a position and you have a good offense and you, as you're a kicker and you get to get on the field, you're going to break some records. You know, and so um, I'm fortunate to have been able to play with really good guys. I still keep in touch with a lot of them. And uh, it was really the experiences, not the records or, or, or not the wins or whatever, the experiences that really I value and treasure today. And what are some of those experiences that you value? Yeah, you know, you're a 17-year-old kid and you leave home. And for me, New Jersey was home and you go to Ohio. And I'd never been to Ohio before. And now I'm hanging out with kids and they're playing like Hank Williams music in the locker room. And I'm like, what is that? What is country music? What does all my rowdy friends have to do with football? So I just, I met some diverse different kind of guys. I met guys from Cleveland and Cincinnati and Connecticut, and we were all young. And we came together and we won some football games together and we were in fraternities together and we served in the community together. And we got, uh, you know, ultimately won an OAC, Ohio Athletic Conference Championship, my senior year. And it was a big deal then because, you know, if you think about uh, most people don't know, small college football in Ohio you got guys like London Fletcher, who is a perennial all-time linebacker who came out of John Carroll University, which is in the Ohio Athletic Conference. And you got Pierre Garçon and Cecil Shorts, who came out of Mount Union, which is in the Ohio Athletic Conference and is a perennial national powerhouse. So it was really good football. It was great life lessons because, you know, for me personally... I I went through all the life lessons in terms of success and failure, I think, that you could go through in four years. I started as a freshman. I was first team all conference as a freshman. I broke the record for something number of field goals in a season. In my sophomore year, I had a, a good year, not a great year. In my junior year, I got hurt. I got demoted. They brought in two other kickers. They had me shuttling in and out. I'd go in on a field goal. We had this system where if you made the field goal, you stayed on. If you missed it, somebody else came in. If you had a good kickoff, you stayed on. So it was really, it was really a tough time because I went from being the guy to being not the guy. And I learned some really valuable lessons about humility, about perseverance, about hard work. And ultimately, my senior year, I vowed. I just vowed that I would return, that I'd get better, that I'd improve, I'd maintain the humility. And I went from the guy who was first team all conference to the guy who was platooning to the guy who's my senior year. I kicked 12 field goals in a row, wound up 17 out of 19. We went to the national playoffs. We got as far as I think the final eight and we won the Ohio Athletic Conference and that was sort of retribution and, and a big reward for working really hard and, and fighting through adversity. 
You know, I've always said that NFL players will be found. And as you just mentioned, some of those guys that come from small schools. And so from your perspective, being at a small school, though, did you have aspirations of wanting to kick in the NFL? I did. I mean, I was, you know, I I was like any boy that grows up watching the sport and participating in it. That's your dream, right? And going to a small school, very few, it's the eye of the needle, right? There are very few London Fletchers. There are very few Pierre Garçons. There are very few Cecil Shorts out there. So for me, I did, I had a good enough career where I thought I could do it. And if you think about kicking, and I have a lot of friends now that um, I care about and I talk to regularly who are the best ever to play the game in the NFL. Kevin Butler is a guy that I love and and he's a good buddy of mine. Morton Anderson is now the second guy in the Hall of Fame. He's a good buddy of mine. He has a great charity. He's got a great energy to him. And Matt Stover, who played for the Ravens and who has two Super Bowl rings, is a really good buddy of mine. And, And so I aspired to be like those guys. And when I got to have a tryout, I think the difference was my mindset when I tried out and I went to some combine kind of stuff and I went to some joint camp kind of stuff was I was just kind of satisfied to be there because I was a small college guy. I didn't really fancy myself as being a guy from, you know, Ohio State or Georgia. I was just happy to be in the group of guys. I remember in one sort of group tryout that I was at, there were the Hightower family from Miami fame, the running back. One of the high tower, no, the high smiths, not the high towers. The high smiths was there, and I was just kind of happy to get the T-shirt. So I did not have a killer mindset and a I'll 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 do it no matter what mindset at age 21, which I later developed. So ultimately, didn't make it. Happy I got the T-shirt, got into the business world, and and so here I am today. You know, a lot of years later. How did that happen? That you developed this mindset of. You know, I'll do it no matter what. Yeah, I, I got into business. I ultimately started with Mobile Oil Corporation. I spent eight years with Mobile. I went through some great life lessons and training. I ran different businesses for Mobile, and, and I just learned a lot. And you start, you know, what you realize as you get older is that knowledge in and of itself is not valuable. Knowledge plus experience plus failure, plus correction, plus success equals wisdom. And it it equals something that I call situational fluency. So once you start to get situationally fluent in different areas of your life, it could be as a father, it could be as a husband, it could be as a business person, it could be as an athlete. Once you get situationally fluent, life starts to get more clear for you. You start to become more comfortable in your own skin, you don't press as much, and success just seems to start to come, right? So I think as I got some business experience and then ultimately I got cancer in uh, 1999, I think. I was 31 at the time. And when I got that news, I was on kind of a high in my life. I was single at the time. I, from a business standpoint, had reached some fairly good success. I was in the greatest shape of my life. I was what's called a pescatarian. I was eating fish, not meat. I was working out six days a week. And I was kind of at this, this, what I thought was a pretty decent pinnacle in my life. And then I got cancer. So humbling experience again, gut check again, tested my faith. And 
through that experience, I developed this belief that with faith, with sort of a collaboration with God and belief in yourself, that anything was possible. So I emerged from that cancer experience with an anything is possible attitude. And I think had I had that back in 1989 when I graduated college, because now I'm an old dude, right? If I had that, if I had that uh, wisdom back in 89, it might have turned out a little different. But I wouldn't trade anything. I really believe that we all have a plan and it's up to you to, to, to do your best and, and make the plan come to life. So how did the news of hearing that you have cancer affect your overall positive outlook? And did you even question that belief of having a positive outlook? I, you know, I try to explain to my children that there's two things that can happen. There's two ways you can respond. Only two, in my view, when bad things happen. You can become emboldened and take it head on and see it as a challenge and get into a fight mentality, fight in a good way, not uh, competitively, but you can, you can raise the stakes and, and take things head on in life, or you can cower as the victim, you can complain, you can have self-pity, and you can ask, why me? At that time, I don't know why, but I naturally... It felt right, it felt natural to go into a mode of positivity and fight. It just felt right, and it really, really worked out for me. I remember being very connected to mankind and the people around me. I, I remember becoming more grateful. I remember thinking about each moment in isolation as valuable, as opposed to taking time for granted. I remember looking at you know, the landscape and the trees and the flowers. And well, well, I didn't become a tree hugger, I looked at this stuff and I said, wow, that's fascinating. That flower's fascinating. And maybe without cancer, maybe I wouldn't have developed that appreciation for things and developed appreciation for the moments that I did in, in that time. So I don't know why it happened. Um, I took that road and I'm sure glad that it worked out the way it did. You hear the news of cancer. So who did you call first that day? You know, in, in, in life, we need, we need people around us who we know, like, trust, and respect, and who we can count on in good times and in bad. So my best buddy uh, for years was a guy in Atlanta named Ed Kennedy. He actually was the driving force behind getting me from New Jersey and from Mobile Oil out to move to Atlanta and start a new chapter and become more entrepreneurial. And so he was the first guy I called. I got the call from the doctor, I called him. I think he showed up at my house 20 minutes later. He might've lived 30 minutes away, but he showed up in 20 minutes. Somehow he got there magically. And he was sort of my, um, my accountability partner throughout. You know, he and I, some of the basis for why my attitude was what it was is he and I started in probably 1995 or so. We lived uh, up in the Northeast. He also started with Mobile Oil. That's where I met him. We were thick as thieves. We ran together. We pushed each other. And we started doing this Tony Robbins, Jim Rohn sort of positivity 
experience thing. We went to seminars, we read books, we bought Tony's tapes, and we just were accountability partners. So he didn't let me slip into pity. He did not let me talk about what the negative consequence potential could be. He really pushed me and inspired me to to, to go on the path of positivity, and I did, and, and again, you know, it really worked out. My parents, you know, I said in uh, uh, another podcast that I did, it was the first time I'd seen my dad get emotional, and, and that was a big impact on me. It was, it was really powerful to see this guy who's, you know, six foot three, 240 pounds or whatever he is. Maybe he's more svelte than that. Maybe I, I, I over, overextended his weight there, but to, to see the people around you struggle with something like that is is really profound and and the people that really care about you and love you are going to are going to come around you and form uh this sort of blanket of support when you when you struggle right now i've heard you mention it before about seeing your dad being emotional so why was that so impactful for you to see your dad being emotional you know there's there's uh it's interesting as men and there's some good there's some good authors, speakers, podcasts out there. I know there's a guy that I started listening to by the name of Lewis Howes. He's got something that talks about this mask that as men we we can sometimes hide behind. It's it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to not be, you know, tough. It's okay to not put on a facade and and I think as as, as men, sometimes we're taught that we got to be really tough and we got to be, you know, we got to put on our game face at all times. So I just hadn't, I just had kind of saw my dad's game face growing up, right? I, I had not seen him vulnerable and this was really the first time. So that was a lesson in and of itself. And it's taught me, those moments have taught me as a dad, I need to be available, vulnerable, emotional, and let that go. And I do. Now, you can still be a leader. You can still be a mentor. You can still hold strong personal values and, and, and live the right life, but it's okay to be vulnerable. And that's what that taught me. Going back now to your career path and business after sports, and you mentioned moving into entrepreneurship. Now, is that entrepreneurial spirit something that's always been in you or something that developed later on for you? Yeah, that's a a good question. And I think for most people that have an athletic background, right? And I don't, it doesn't really matter if you reached the pro level, because I think it's 1% of NCAA Division I athletes get to the professional level. So it's very, very few people. Very few high school athletes make it to the Division I level, right? I think it's 2% of high school football players play division one football. It's a very small number. So if you played competitively through high school, then I really believe in your, in your sort of uh, dossier, your, your DNA, your, your um, mental DNA, you have the ability to take risks because as an athlete, you're taking risks. You're putting yourself out there. You're competing for a position. You're Um, competing on a stage, people are watching you, whether there's two people or 200,000 people who are watching you, people are watching you. So I think that prepared me to take risk, uh, prepared me to put myself out there. It prepared me to be a leader. And as a result, I've always had these sort of entrepreneurial tendencies. And 
over the last 15 years, it's, it's really propelled me to start or participate as the starting team uh, with three different companies. So, you know, you learn an awful lot. And, and now at, at age 50, I, I feel like uh, quoting another buddy of mine who I just heard uh, speak. He's a world-class saxophonist by the name of Mike Phillips. And he plays the national anthem for NFL games. He did for, for the Falcons playoff game this, this last season, the NFC Championship with, with the Falcons and Packers. He said, I have nothing to prove and everything to share. And I really resonated with that because that's really my story. That's where I am on the journey. I've accomplished some things. I've uh, succeeded at a bunch of stuff. I failed at some things. And I'm at the point where I just don't have anything left to prove. I really want to share with people and, and help others maybe avoid some pitfalls maybe learn some tricks and tools that, that can propel them. And athletes are a natural uh, affinity for me because I understand the grind. I understand the toll it takes. I understand the commitment. And I really, I really want to help athletes avoid some of the pitfalls that occur as they transition from sport to life because that road is really wrought with potholes. So how are you doing that today? Yeah, so about 10 years ago, I met Larry Fitzgerald at a charity event. And f since that time, I've met with and interacted with literally hundreds of professional athletes. I would say that the vast majority are NFL players, but there are Major League Baseball and NBA players as well. So in that course of getting to know really several hundred guys, and in a lot of cases, their spouses, I've just observed that there are three main things that happen to professional athletes as they exit a sport and enter into the next encore phase of their life. Number one, they have a massive identity crisis. And I think for anybody who competes in anything, whether it's an entrepreneur, uh, you're an executive, you're an attorney, you're a doctor, you're a teacher, you're an athlete. It, it really doesn't matter. But we are, unfortunately, people and a society that places a lot of value on results. And as a result of placing all that value on results, we oftentimes tie our identity to what we do for a living. And the problem starts right there. So if you were an athlete and you went to a major college or even a place like Wittenberg, and then you played in the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball, and your career was three years, four years, seven years, 10 years, two years, when that's done and somebody tells you you're no longer welcome, it is a catastrophic event psychologically and emotionally from an identity crisis standpoint. And almost every guy that I know goes through varying degrees of the seven stages of grief. Yeah. There is anger, there's frustration, there's sadness, and that can lead to, that can lead to destructive behavior. It can lead to um, staying at home for three years. It can lead to having issues with your spouse. It can lead to having issues with your kids. It can lead to substance abuse. It can lead to income loss. It can lead to your, your, um, your nest egg that you left 
your sport with, that gets whittled down because you're not, you're not working. So that's the first thing that, that is an issue, and, and I want to help. The second issue is lots of guys have told me, hey, I, I worked as an athlete. I played in the NFL for five years, and I went to lots of team functions. I went to lots of charity events. I got lots of business cards. I met lots of influential business people. But you know what? I was working on my next contract. I was working to get better. I was working to make a team. And I really I threw those business cards away. And I did not invest in relationships with people who I probably could call now who might invest back in me who might mentor me, who might take me under their wing, who might give me a job, who might co-invest in a business opportunity. And I missed the boat. And as a result, one NFL uh, recent retiree who played seven years in the league told me, I'm a 31-year-old, 21-year-old. And I'm 10 years behind, and I need to make it up. And then the third thing is, you know, a lot of athletes and their, and their, their families leave the league with seven figures. Some leave with less. And seven figures is great, but if you leave the NFL with $2 million or $3 million or $4 million and you don't have income replacement and a job that's going to make you six figures, because that's what you're spending every year to live. When you make a million or $2 million or 800000 or 700000 as a professional athlete, the odds are, the overwhelming odds are, that your cost of living is six figures plus a year, 100,000, 200,000, 300, whatever it is to pay for your house and your kid's education and your car and not be extravagant, but pay for the lifestyle that you've created. That's not a Ferrari lifestyle, by the way. And that's not a lifestyle that gets you $50,000 vacations. That's a lifestyle that's a really good life, but you got to replace that income. And I've just observed that guys have these teams of folks around them that are helping them with their, their money. Could be a financial advisor, a CPA, an insurance person, a real estate person, a benefits person, an attorney, estates, trusts, wills, alternative investments, loans, banking. That's a team. That's almost 11 people I just named off the top of my head. And I say to guys, look, uh, let's say you played for the Atlanta Falcons and the owner of the Atlanta Falcons everybody knows is Arthur Blank. And if you're a player, well, you're out on the field playing. And if you're practicing and Arthur Blank walked out on the practice field and said, hey, you're a linebacker. You need to be lined up a little bit inside of where you're lined up. And in cover two, here's where I need you to go. And you need to read the fullback on this play action pass. You'd look at the owner and say, what on earth are you talking about? You don't, you don't know how to coach me. You don't have the knowledge base. You don't have the wisdom. You don't have the experiences of going through that. So I'm not really sure how I could take you seriously on that. I ask guys the questions. You're the owner of your team of people that's helping take your finances for the rest of your life, really, and protect it and grow it. You're the owner. Who's the coach? And invariably, a guy or his wife or both look at me and say, yeah, there's, there's not a coach. So the financial team are the players, the owner's me, and I don't have a coach. So those are three areas, you know, lack of a head coach for that team, lack of a business network that's, that's built and can help the player get a job or, or invest in the player or mentor the player, and lack of a plan to fix the identity crisis are really the big areas that athletes 
are struggling with, and I'm very passionate about helping them in each of those. How do you bring all of that together then? Well, I'm not, uh, I'm not skilled enough, experienced enough, or, or, or bright enough to do all those things alone. And so I am skilled at pulling together the right pieces to make sure that the player and his wife and family have the pieces in place and the strategy in place and the plan in place to be able to tackle those three issues. And so I've teamed up with experts like Tommy Newberry, who wrote the 4-8 principle and who has a process called Game Plan for Life that helps adjust a mindset, eliminate negative thinking, put in place a personal mission statement, align goals, and have a real roadmap to get mindset and identity correct. So that's the first place. The second place is I've worked for the last 30 years to build my network and my network, which I really value and I trust, is interested. There are lots of business people that are interested in helping athletes have an encore career or mentor them because of the fact that athletes have such unique skill sets. Athletes persevere. They're goal-oriented. They're willing to do whatever it takes. They have been told they can't do it. So they have this constant overcoming capability. What athletes lack is just business skills and training. That stuff is easy. You can teach business skills and training. You can't really teach a 30-year-old man to be motivated. That's why it's always amazing to me when people say, well, I'm going to motivate my employees. I don't think you are. People are either motivated or they're not. You've got to give them a plan. You've got to give, you've got to give them opportunities to succeed. But you're not going to probably motivate a 30- or 35-year-old man or woman who doesn't have it in them to be motivated. And athletes have that already. So I love the intrinsic values and skill sets that athletes bring. It's just pulling it out of them. And most people are afraid to engage that. I want to embrace that. And I think more people need to know about how powerful athletes can be in their business world. And then so you help connect those athletes with opportunities through your network. Yeah. So, you know, if somebody said to me, hey, what's your unique skill? What's what are you best at? I would say that I'm best at reading opportunities and connecting people, putting them together when it makes sense, and usually something significant happens when I put people together because I don't just do it to do it. I don't just guess. I really take time to understand, hey, Richmond, here's what you're good at. Here's what value you bring. Here's what you want out of life. Here's what you need. And then I look at the athlete and say, here's what you're good at. Here's what you want out of life. Here's the value you bring. And if there's a mesh, I'll put you guys together because I believe that significant value could come. I'm not willing at this point in my life. It doesn't make any sense. I don't have anything to prove. I'm not willing to take a flyer on plugging you into an athlete or an athlete into you just because it. I want to take a flyer on it. I'm really going to kind of analyze that and make um, make connections where I think I'm really a matchmaker of sorts, right? Yeah. I love that. So I love the connector part and I love kind of being a change agent when I know there's something magical that could happen. And I know you also focus on giving back. So how did that become so important to you? I think for, for different people, their level of uh, generosity, gratitude, giving back quotient, whatever you want to call it, it varies. Right? Some people come out of the womb that way. Some people learn at an early age. 
other people have to go through trials and tribulations and observe and gain wisdom and then get to the point where they shift from their pursuit of their own personal success to a pursuit of significance and impact, not significance to be significant themselves, but to do significant things that help other people. And for me, it's really been part of a journey. Candidly, right, I grew up wanting success. I grew up wanting to have success on the football field. I grew up wanting to have success in the classroom. I made the dean's list. I was proud of myself. I was a honorable mention All-American as a senior playing football. I was proud of myself. I got a good job. I was proud of myself. I fought through all those things. But at some point, you learn that it's not about being proud. It's not about being successful. It's not about accomplishing things. It's not about stuff. It's not about that. But you got to go through some lessons to get there. So for me, I've made a shift over the last decade of my life, and it's no longer about what i got to prove, what i got to get, what success I have, what accolade, what pat on the back. It really is about who can I help, and what can I give, and what can I share, and who can I connect? Because the real joy for me is watching that stuff happen. That brings me a tremendous sense of joy. It brings me a tremendous sense of satisfaction. And in particular, if I can help a couple, let's say a professional football player, an NFL player who's been out of the league for four years, has two kids or three kids, is married. If I can impact that couple and help them in one or two or three of those areas that I talked about, that's going to change a family. And that family is going to go change another family. And that other family may change another family. And I really believe that in the world we're in today, with so much negativity, it's not that you can get up on a stage in an arena of 80,000 people and say, you need to be positive. You need to stop saying bad things. I believe you've got to do the work one person at a time. I believe that if you do it and it's authentic and you're transparent and vulnerable, that somebody else is going to go, wow, I can do that too. And they're going to go help somebody else. And they're going to act kindly towards somebody else. And they're going to give back and help somebody else. And we can turn this thing around. We're just not going to do it shouting from the rooftops in an arena of 100,000 people. I think we can, we can, person by person, couple by couple, I think we can change the story. And I think America looks at professional athletes and has some preconceived notions. The preconceived notions are they make a lot of money. There's a lot of cameras in front of them. They probably live in nice houses. They probably drive nice cars. And they probably don't have the problems I have. Or maybe the other story might be they have too many problems and they do bad things. And so I'm not like them. Here's the reality. The reality is my observation is the NFL is not a lot different than life around you. There's re- the majority of players in the NFL are great guys. They care, they have families, or they're gonna have families. They aspire to make an impact. They are out in the community on Tuesdays, which is the off day in the NFL. They're doing community work. They're showing up at children's hospitals. They care, they really wanna make a difference. And America doesn't see that. What they see is a six game suspension or a substance abuse issue and they never get the story. In the last two months, I've been to 10 NFL player charity events. Last week, uh, on Monday, I was in Denver at Von Miller's charity event. This coming Monday, I'm gonna be in Charlotte at Roman Harper and 
uh, Kurt Coleman's charity event. And guess what? At both of those events, 20 of their teammates will show up. 20 of their teammates will spend time. 20 of their teammates will help raise money. And it'll go back to change kids' lives. A month ago, I was at Larry Fitzgerald's charity event. Before that, I was at, uh, you know, Chad Greenway has a charity event every year. There's so much going on. Warwick Dunn right here in Atlanta has uh, multiple charity events. He's putting single mothers in homes and, and helping clothe them and help their kids. And two weeks ago, Sean Weatherspoon of the Falcons had a big charity event, and he introduced international justice mission to the 200 people in the crowd and how sex trafficking is is taking over and what you can do to help. So it's really amazing the great work that's going on that no one knows about because we, we have this, this appetite for controversy and bad news and the media doesn't want to cover good news. So I guess in, in closing my little diatribe there on, on, um, on giving back, there are a lot of pro athletes, current and retired, who care, they're doing good things, they're good citizens, they're active in their community, and they're just trying to raise a family like you and me. They're, they're, they're no different fundamentally than you and me. And yeah, they made a bunch of dough in the first three or four years of their career, and now they've got to figure out what to do because they're not making a lot of dough after that. There's a handful of, of players whose names are Brady, Fitzgerald, Manning, Miller, Rogers, and Newton, and most of the other players you could bump into tomorrow, they could hand you a gallon of milk at the store and you would have no idea who they were, right? So it's, uh, it's an interesting time. I'm glad to be part of um, hopefully helping to change the, the story and, and helping as many people as possible to work toward changing around the overall theme of hey, things are negative and things are bad. Things are not, don't have to be negative. In most places, they're not. And uh, it, just, it just takes courage to go out for people and, and, um, and help others. I agree with you, and I really like how you describe and talk about that you're not necessarily focusing on the success of proving something, that it's more about creating significance. And as we finish up here, Rob, I know you've talked about how sports is shaped your life and with all that you've been through, especially beating cancer. So what words of wisdom or advice has meant a lot to you that you would like to share? Yeah, look, I I think that the simplest thing that every person right now, if you're if you're human and you breathe, it's just the golden rule. It's just the golden rule. Do unto others as you, you would want to have done to you, whether that's on social media when you're engaging somebody or face-to-face, just do unto others as you want to have done to you. Seek first to understand somebody else before you want to be heard and understood. If we just did that one little thing, we sought to understand and then be understood, I think everybody would be in a better spot. The power of positivity truly lives strong with Rob. And, you know, I've heard him mention that the book, The 4-8 Principle by Tommy Newberry helped enhance his positive outlook. And it's a book that has really impacted me as well. So I highly recommend you check that book out. And Rob also, he does a great job of summing up 
the impact of sports in his life through all of the experiences that he went through playing at Wittenberg and just some of those experiences of the ups and downs through life and what that did to him in terms of helping shape and mold him. And then, of course, the journey he went through with cancer and ultimately beating it. And I truly think that there's something to the effect of having a positive mindset and what that means on how you go through some of these life challenges. And no doubt, Rob just exudes that positivity. Now, Rob also mentioned in our interview that he was on another podcast and talked more about his battle with cancer. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast Brink of Midnight with John Brinkus, then you're truly missing out. And many of you might know that John is also known as ESPN's sports science guy, but his podcast Brink of Midnight is one of my favorites. And Rob was a guest there, and that's where he talked more about that defining moment of beating cancer and what that looked like. So make sure you check that out. And then finally, oftentimes in life, we try to make things so complicated and it doesn't really have to be. And Rob was able to showcase that at the very end with his words of wisdom. It's very simple. It's not complicated. It's the golden rule. Just do unto others as you'd want done unto you. And that's just so simple for us to remember. And don't make it complicated. So I'm hoping that people can take that type of positive energy that he has and also just those simple words of wisdom and utilize that mindset in our everyday lives. Now that finishes up episode 38. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.